0: Funny how? I mean funny like I'm a clown and I amuse you?
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Silver Screen Video Podcast with me, Jonathan, and my co-host, Jacob. Jacob, how are things going?
2: Things are good, man. I'm excited. we got a great guest today.
1: We do. We do. And guys, um, a little peek behind the curtain, as my co-host likes to say, um, this episode uh, almost didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> we, re- we recorded a great episode. Phenomenal. Our guest is Audrey Kaufman. I guess we should say that. Great episode of really fun conversation about all kinds of shit, and uh, we lost the audio of our guest. Um, and through some hard work from Audrey, uh, thank thank you, Audrey, uh, we were able to actually recover the audio, but it was a journey of ups and downs, and um, I think we're all happy this conversation is able to make it because I do think we were pretty, uh, pretty crushed about the idea of having that great episode and then it not getting out to you guys I think I can speak for everyone
2: yeah it was it was fucking brutal man because we we talked we talk about Ernst Lubitsch we talk about the state of cinema Audrey's a really talented uh writer and director and actor and uh yeah we talked about all kinds of cool shit and then it just uh just down the tube uh but thankfully uh Audrey was uh uh shout out to Audrey Audrey if you're listening you're an angel a saint among us uh, for, uh, finding that audio and letting us release it to the world. So yeah, big, big shout out to Audrey folks.
1: Yeah. And also guys, we talk about her, uh, her pilot that she shot called idle hands. And we mentioned it a lot in the episode, but that link will be in the show notes. Make sure you check it out. It is very funny. And, uh, it's a, definitely a good watch. It's about 30 minutes long. So Aside from that, this is just a really fun conversation. We really enjoyed it, and uh, we appreciate Audrey coming on, and uh, it was a good time. So you got anything to add before we jump, before we just throw it to it? No, let's do it. Okay, guys, thanks for stopping by the Silver Screen video. We hope you enjoy this, and we'll see you next week.
2: All right, folks. Our guest this week is a very talented writer, director, and actor. Uh, She's also a great follow on Twitter. Please welcome to the show, uh, Audrey Kaufman. Hi, Audrey.
3: Hi. That was such a nice introduction.
2: Was it? I'm I, not, so. I, I didn't. I didn't know if I should describe you as an actor or not. I know you act in the pilot, but I don't know if you would identify as that. Is that okay?
3: It's it's totally okay. I mean, I I d- don't totally identify as an actor, but you know, just like that's okay. uh that's totally fine it was nice of you to identify me as an actor okay all right.
2: <laughs> yeah i, well, I feel um, I, oh sorry go ahead john
1: well i was gonna say uh thanks for coming on audrey we appreciate it and um and yeah while we're talking about that i was curious out of out of writing directing and acting what is your preference
3: oh i love directing i mean i okay. i would say i like probably would identify most as a writer um, but yeah, directing Idle Hands, that was like one of, that's like the most fun I've ever had for sure.
2: Well, let's, uh, let's talk about that. Cause I feel like a lot of people know you, uh, for your Twitter account, um, <laughs> just because you're very funny on Twitter. Uh, but, uh, you've also written and directed and acted in a pilot called Idle Hands. You started your own production company called Tiny Girl Productions. So, so tell us all about this. How did the pilot come about? Uh, and how did uh, I mean starting your own production company? That that that's awesome, you know. So how did all this come about?
3: Oh, um, yeah. So I started writing with my former writing partner in college, and we wrote Idle Hands. Just kind of, it was kind of the first pilot that both of us had ever written. Um, and then we submitted it to a bunch of fellowships when we were graduating, and we got the HBO fellowship from that pilot. Um, and did that and wrote a script in that, that we didn't like quite as much as Idle Hands and then kind of just ended up producing Idle Hands ourselves and putting it out there. Um, Cause yeah, we just wanted something that was representative of our, our voice.
2: Gotcha. And what, what, uh, what was the HBO fellowship like? What does that, what does that involve?
3: It's like, uh, you know, all the networks have, kind of like fellowships for emerging talent and so when we were graduating me and my former writing partner um we kind of just like applied to all of them like it was grad school okay and yeah and then kind of like got one and it was a nice little uh delay in the post-grad freak out you know (laughs) i felt like i like had something to do and like things were going great um yeah, so that was kind of nice. I mean, I ultimately did have my post grad freak out, but
0: we
2: <laughs> <laughs> just postponed it. Um, now you said your yeah. your writing partner, uh, former writing partner Dana Donnelly. It, it, or sorry, is that Dana? Is that is that who you're referring yes. to when you say former? Yeah, writing partner?
3: sorry, Dana Donnelly.
2: Um, should I read too much into that former? You, did you guys have a uh, <laughs> Hollywood style falling out? Or... Uh,
3: how I would like describe it I I mean I definitely you know it was very um emotionally impactful because when you have a writing partner it's very easy to kind of I feel like be confident in your ability because it's not like we are so it's not like I am so brilliant it's we are so brilliant and it's a lot easier to do that when you're doing it kind of on behalf of someone else um, right. and so then when I was alone, I kind of like, didn't know how to just have that confidence like in myself. Um, gotcha. yeah. So I would say, you know, that's probably like the most, uh, impact that I got from that.
2: Gotcha. Now, you're well, uh, own- oh, sorry. Go ahead, John. Well,
1: I just had a quick question. So we talked a little bit off pod about the, uh, the pilot and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's fucking hilarious. Uh, Whenever what well, what was kind of your inspiration for that because that humor is like something that I like that's my kind of humor and like um it, it was just I don't know what what kind of inspired that was that an original idea was it did it come from something in real life I mean
3: um I'm trying to think I mean Dana and I would always talk about uh sort of the kind of like ideal man being like what the ideal man would be. And it was always someone like, oh, the ideal man is in jail, so he can't hook up with other girls. Or the ideal man <laughs> is... So we basically would talk about that. We settled on the ideal man is a widower because he has... Uh, he can do commitment, you know? And he also <laughs> hasn't been divorced. <laughs> like, there is nothing wrong. She just died. And so that's kind of how we came to the idea of making it a breast cancer support group. Cause we were like, where can we just, can they find basically like potential like widowers? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's not, it's not the worst idea because it's, it's like, it's already been proven. So everything's done. There's no blemishes there. So, I mean, yeah, that's uh that's a pretty amusing uh, idea. And yeah, that, <laughs> those, those support group scenes were, were pretty funny. Now, was those friends and family that was in it? Did you guys hire anybody or?
3: Yeah, we did hire like a bunch of actors um, for the support group. But our families were just played our families. Um, And yeah, so I loved the actors that we ended up hiring. Everyone was really great.
2: So so talk about starting your own production company. I think that's such an interesting um and it's a great name, Tiny Girl Productions. Um <laughs> what what does that involve, I guess? What uh what does it take to start your own production company and uh I don't know what's the what's the direction? What where, where are you guys headed?
3: Um so I wouldn't say that we're doing much with the production company at this point. You know, we've we have oh. kind of like split creatively. Um but, you know, at the time, I would just say it's like, it's not that hard. It's like you just kind of create an LLC and you have people who you work with, like kind of regularly, like the the DP on Idle Hands um, was also like a really great producer and helped us out with things and gotcha. um, Ryan Bender. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't say it like involved like too, too much, like mostly just paperwork and bank account stuff.
2: Gotcha. So what's the future? What's the future for um, for the great uh, writer, director, and actor Audrey Kaufman? You got anything in the pipeline, anything you're working on you can, you can tease out for our listeners?
3: Yeah, I'm working right now on a script that's kind of inspired by um, Infowars and all of the kind of conspiracy online oh, yeah. stuff. Um, basically involving a undercover cia agent who loves to gossip um and ends up telling her boyfriend all of this very sensitive information and he becomes a conspiracy theorist but some of these conspiracies are true um and he ends up having an immense amount of power kind of like networky you know like kind of howard Beale. um i just like think that the sort of conspiracy theory world is so interesting. It's like a great American art for him.
2: Oh, you're talking to, you're talking to two big conspiracy theory fans. I don't even know if we've really gotten <laughs> into it on the podcast, but like my love for Alex Jones, I feel like has crossed a line from me <laughs> to like, now I just love him and hope he's, hope he's I doing totally. okay. You know, like, I hope he gets to see his kids, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs>
1: Well, it's turned into like modern day theater. Like it's just right. so, yeah. it, it's so fantastic. Um, are you planning on this being a feature or do you want to turn it into a series?
3: Um, it probably, I the one, I see it more as a pilot. I think I think more in like an episodic format for the most part. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just like, I also just love Alex Jones. And I think there's so many, not just Alex Jones, but there's so many great characters on Infowars. Right who are like, it is like dry comedy.
2: <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> I yeah. My and favorite. What I love
3: is, oh no. Go no, ahead. sorry. Go ahead. Oh, so I was just going to say the commercials are also kind of funny.
0: Oh, <laughs> So right. it is
3: like, you're watching a show that is 24 seven live and even the commercials are kind of still the show. And I just find it so fascinating. I, I could watch it for forever
1: well i just i just love how everyone is so unnecessarily aggressive constantly like (laughs) those are the kind of commercials i want it's like i want to feel threatened if i don't do what they're asking me to do
2: (laughs) my my two favorite alex jones things are the my, my favorite alex jones thing is the before and after pictures where like he's selling the supplements and like (laughs) before it's just Alex Jones. And after it's just Alex Jones, but redder, like (laughs) that's, that's like the only difference. But I also, I have a favorite Alex Jones moment where he, he is like kind of like taking the air out of like people calling him like a crazy conspiracy theorist. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a crazy conspiracy theorist. And he's like, and he gets out, like, a tinfoil hat and, like, puts it on. And is like, as a joke, like, ha, 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 yeah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then he, like, pauses for a moment and has a moment of clarity. And then he goes, you know, actually, this is probably protecting me from some of the radiation in this building. <laughs> 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 well,
3: <laughs> he's, like,
1: he's like a South Park character come to life. It's just so delightful. Yeah.
3: He is. Yeah. He's a character. He's a comedy character.
2: Have you have you heard the conspiracy theory that he's actually comedian Bill Hicks? John, do you know about
1: this? No, no but, oh but that sounds awesome.
2: Yeah, it's a conspiracy theory that he is actually Bill that Bill Hicks never died. He just turned into Alex Jones and like went off the grid or like w- like changed his name and everything, and now he's Alex Jones. Which you know, I I kind of want to believe almost.
1: Well, that explains why the last time he was on Rogan, Rogan was like, ladies and gentlemen, I've met Bill Hicks, and I've met Alex Jones. They are not the same person. <laughs> he like implied that, and I was like, oh, well, that didn't make any sense to me, but now it does.
2: Oh, okay. So so Rogan has ruled on this. I believe so. Okay.
3: I just like Googled Bill Hicks, and he doesn't really look that much like Alex Jones.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean... <sighs> Maybe Alex Jones plus ten years or something. I don't know. I don't know how long ago Bill Hicks got.
1: Um, well also as much as I love Alex Jones, Bill Hicks is hilarious. Like he he was he was pretty awesome. So, no, it's
2: Bill Hicks yeah. plus the supplements. That's what it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's I think that makes sense. If you if you take Bill Hicks and load him up with uh you know, I don't know, uh, go snorted up goat hooves, you know, <laughs> then I think that uh I think that makes Alex Jones. Um okay, so um Audrey, I I wanted to ask you because um, I feel like I could talk about Alex Jones all day. Um, (laughs) But uh, we uh, reached out to you and asked you about doing an episode and was kind of completely up to you, you know, kind of what director, what topic you wanted to do. And you pick Ernst Lubitsch, who is a longtime favorite of both of us. And I was wondering if you could um, kind of expound upon how his relation Uh, what his relation is to you as like a creator or as like a writer? Like, is he an inspiration? Um, I don't know. What's kind of your history with, uh, with the Lubitsch touch.
3: Oh God. I mean, I, I do just adore him. I think that his, he is an inspiration. Um, I do think his films are just so excellently crafted. Right. Um, I started like, watching him originally because I was into Billy Wilder and Billy Wilder would always talk about Lubitsch Church. and then I watched Lubitsch and I'm like oh I totally see what kind of Billy Wilder was aspiring to be but kind of couldn't mm-hmm. quite be. like he just Billy Wilder has a bit of like sort of coldness whereas Lubitsch just has like this I don't know like a ability to show sort of like love and eroticism and kind of bonding between people, you know, like in, in the shots that he picks and all of these things. So even though they're written by Billy Wilder, a lot of these films, um, if you compare them to Billy Wilder films, I think you can kind of see just the difference in, in warmth and closeness and sort of the believability of love.
0: (sighs) Yeah,
2: absolutely. I have a couple of quotes here that I think are relevant to what you're saying. There's uh, the great Billy Wilder quote where he's, uh, apparently when he was leaving Lubitsch's funeral, Billy Wilder said, no more Lubitsch. And William Wyler was there and he responded, it's actually worse than that. No more Lubitsch pictures, which is, uh, I love that quote.
3: It's true.
2: Yeah. But also it reminds me of, um, it, I just completely lost my train of thought.
1: Well, while you're thinking, I have a question, uh, Audrey. Would you uh, would you say he is your your primary like inspiration as a director, or do you have any other directors that you would put a little bit higher than him?
3: Um, you know, I think I like will get in phases of being into a particular director, and Lubitsch is sort of the most recent. So I would say like he's currently kind of my favorite director, but I also feel very sort of like influenced and inspired by martin mcdonough um, and I'm trying to think i mean I, I really love any kind of political satire or dark comedy um, like i how really you, like how do you comedy. feel about
1: how do you feel about armando Iannucci
3: i adore armando ianucci <laughs> yeah
1: me too that guy that guy is a god he's so fucking good
3: have you seen the thick of it Oh yeah. Yeah. I, that, that was,
1: that's where he got his yeah. start, isn't it?
3: Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's so incredible. It's so yeah, funny. Yeah. It's, uh,
1: my introduction to him was in the loop and, uh, and I just fell in love with that movie and I was like, who the fuck writes stuff like this? Like what is happening? And then like, that's how I kind of got into everything else he did. And then, uh, obviously Veep and so on. So yeah, he's good though. Now you
2: mentioned and
3: Jesse Armstrong. Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: Now, now, you mentioned uh, Martin McDonough. Now, John, I know he's a favorite of yours, right?
1: Absolutely. Seven Psychopaths mm-hmm. uh, in Bruges, like Seven Psychopaths, uh, specifically, uh, given the content of it, it's one of my favorite movies. It was on my top 10 of the decade, actually. I uh, I fucking love that movie.
2: Now, I have a question. Will either of you make any kind of effort to defend three billboards outside of the <laughs> nursery? Because No, I didn't I have like to it. Say, enough. Yeah, oh. I have to say that's I, I don't know. That's one of my least favorite movies of the past like five years.
1: I I can't I can't defend it. I, I... It's it's a shame that that was the movie where Rockwell got his recognition because he was great in it but mm-hmm. I didn't like like that just gave the movie more clout but I don't understand what he was doing. I feel like he was writing about a subject that he doesn't quite understand mm-hmm. from a country totally that he agree. doesn't quite understand. Yeah, like he doesn't understand it. Yeah, it's I don't know. It was just I remember walking out and I was like, why am I not blown away? Like, I've yet to not love a movie this guy's done. But why do I feel like I'm on the out right now? And uh, I've seen it like three times. I can't change my mind about it.
2: Uh, By the way, uh, fun fact. I don't know if you guys know this. Martin McDonough is in a relationship with uh, Fleabag's Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I
3: didn't know that.
2: Talk about a power couple.
1: I didn't know that. I've heard Fleabag is really good. I haven't got around to watching it, though
2: oh, oh the watch second
3: it. season's incredible
2: yeah it's really great um okay what's All his right.
3: face the hot priest is really really good yeah
1: he's he's uh he's so damn funny he was he was good and uh in the first season of sherlock too he played yes. Moriarty. yeah
2: first season of sherlock is that the benedict cumberbatch one
1: yeah mm-hmm. he played moriarty man he was fucking unhinged he was good uh,
2: i never got around to seeing that
1: um It's worth checking
2: out. Yeah.
3: This is all great content we're discussing.
2: Yeah. (laughs) All right. So, uh, Ernst Lubitsch. uh, I just want to go over a couple things about his life, um, which we try to do in our director's episode and give a little bit of an overview of his life. Um, And it's kind of interesting because his his trajectory is a little different. um, Because the first movie of his that we watched is 1932's Trouble in Paradise. And often... um, You know, if you look up lists or even like essential Lubitsch, you could be confused with thinking that his career starts here, but it really doesn't. This was the apex of his career, and it was kind of uh, downhill after that. I mean, regarding um, his reputation. Um, So uh, he was a German Jew and he was uh, born in Berlin. And uh, throughout the 1910s, he was a stage actor, and then he was a movie actor, and then he became a director. And he became a pretty well-established German silent director during the uh, 1910s, which is, I mean, it's crazy that, I mean, there was even a German film industry. I didn't even know there was a German film industry back then. And apparently he came to Hollywood in 1922. And during the 1920s, he became a very well-respected Hollywood director. And he, he basically invented uh, this kind of alluring uh, continental style, was what people were calling it back then, that became associated with these like glamorous portrayals of European elegance. And that's kind of what he uh, made his name on throughout the 1920s. Now, sadly, a lot of his movies before Trouble in Paradise just aren't available anywhere. They're lost. Or they're they're not readily available on shri- streaming or even DVD or anything like that, which is uh, you know which is sad. But you know, hey, we we live in hell. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: so, nineteen thirty two comes around. Trouble in Paradise. Uh, this is pre production code. So this is a pre code uh, Hollywood comedy about a couple of a uh, couple of thieves who are up to no good and uh, trying to swindle the the lovely Kay Francis. Um, out of uh, her money, uh so thoughts on trouble in paradise audrey what's uh what's your relationship with this movie?
3: I honestly don't like it that much <laughs>
0: really? in
3: terms of like yeah Lubitsch movies. um I thought Kay Francis was really sexy, but i other than that it it did remind me a lot of kind of uh, what's that sudden fear. Have you seen that with uh who's that with?
2: No, I don't know that one.
3: Jack Palance.
2: Hmm. No, I don't know that. Um.
3: One. Yeah. So he's he's trying to like sort of swindle uh Joan Crawford out of her money. Okay. Um. But like in a darker way. So it kind of reminded me of that movie, but as a comedy. Okay. Um. But yeah, I mean, what about what about you guys?
1: Well, I'm I'm glad you said it first. Uh, this. <laughs> this was by far my least favorite of the five we watched uh, wow yeah I, uh, I I had never seen it before until this now mind you I did watch it after like three like I think it was the fourth one I watched and the first three were just so fucking good yeah. so Trouble in Paradise was like having to like you know go up to that so yeah it, it wasn't bad by any means and there was some good parts in it but I mean yeah it did not do it for me the way the other ones did
2: yeah, I, I I could not disagree more. This is my second favorite one. I um I love this movie. I I think it's when I think of a of, of a Lubitsch movie, this is the one that I think of. It's so uh, elegant and so funny, and the humor is so like sophisticated. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 positively like amoral. Like these these people are bad. It's like an episode of Seinfeld or something. Like everybody. <laughs> like mostly a bad person. And if they're not like overtly bad, they're kind of bad because they're just rich and, and, and clueless. Um,
1: Well, I mean, the end of it was priceless because you just have, it's like they, they both go to do something and realize the other one has taken it and they laugh and it's like, ha ha, we're laughing. We can never trust each other. Um, (laughs) Are you, are you going to murder me while I'm asleep and take my money? I don't know. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I I I I kind of buy the K Francis uh whoever that guy is uh romance. Um between her and the 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 male lead who I can't think of his name right now. Um Herbert Herbert Marshall. Oh right. Okay. I, I kind of buy the, the Roman because I love how kind of um I don't know, I love how kind of catty he is. He's almost and the way he's like advising her on her makeup and stuff, he's almost like a a gay best friend that she like falls in mm-hmm. love with. And I don't know, there's there's just something so like weird and kind of uh forbidden about their relationship that I think is really, really kind of fun and interesting. Damn, I can't believe I'm out on a limb here. This is uh oh, yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, you really should have just gone along with it and uh, not voiced that, and just said, "Yeah, I didn't like it that much either." Now you've ruined it. So
2: uh, there
3: was a better conversation now. That is true, man.
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. I, this is this is
3: peak I image didn't buy for the me. Romance. I didn't buy the romance at all, especially compared to the romances in his other films, which I totally bought and which I right. found so compelling. This one felt sort of shallow to me
1: well oh, i agree like if you compare this to the romance and like Ninotchka, like i couldn't like i there was nothing there to for me i don't know
3: yeah was is my favorite that's I, a good
2: one i think it's definitely the most kind of stylistic the most like uh in fact there is a quote from Lubitsch where he says for pure style i have done nothing better or as good um and uh there's this other quote that somebody wrote about it he created not only a style but a place his imaginary homeland a paradise of sophistication disguised as paris vienna or budapest um characters are sophisticated elegant and self-aware i don't know whatever we can move on i'm not mad (laughs) but uh well this movie is amazing
1: I'll say this, like, but while it wasn't my favorite movie, and I know that this is always easy to say grass is always greener, insert whatever you want there. Um, They just don't, with all five of these films, they don't make movies like this anymore. They don't make, like, all of these are technically, like, romantic comedies, for, for better or worse. And, like, they just don't make Films like this anymore and I know it's easy To point to classic Hollywood and and Be like oh well this is what we're clinging to But honestly that's kind of the feel I got From all of them there's a couple in particular Where it's like it's so soulful And it's so actually like it Means something opposed to Unfortunately most of the movies in this genre They get made today
3: so I totally agree It's when I watch That's that's why when we were talking about like How I feel That it's kind of inspiring It is, I've felt inspired for the first time in a while because there are no movies now that are like this. Like I even think of, uh, did you guys watch Palm Springs?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah,
3: that was good. So, But but it was interesting because it's like something that I've noticed about Lubitsch that he does really well is just like creating that very believable intimacy. And I think a lot of it is just having like more scenes of the couple together Mm. and in Palm Springs I just noticed it was just felt so plotty and they were barely together the whole time and then there was like a they fell in love in a montage which is it works plot wise like it's not like you're not accomplishing something but in terms of actually like creating that very believable intimacy I feel like people don't like sort of like take the time in films
1: well i mean that's that's really how low the bar is set for like me because when i was watching that movie i laughed my ass off but i was Mm -hmm. i'm already i've already come to the point to where it's like i don't expect to feel anything i just expect to laugh and the movie's basically like it is what it is it's done its job at that point because i just i've gotten to where i don't expect anything else from movies like that like unfortunately
2: well i feel like uh, you know i feel like regarding um like romantic comedies i feel like i don't know i don't, I don't know how what percentage is 90 percent or 80 percent or whatever but like so much of it is depend on the chemistry between the two leads and
0: i agree
2: and, and most often they're not cast for that reason you know what i mean they're not cast because they have chemistry they're cast because they're Agents need them to get a paycheck or, you know what I mean, that they're cast because we need another Jennifer Aniston romantic comedy because it makes a lot of money. And so I think that is such an important element that is often missing. Like one of my favorite modern romantic comedies is um, Rene Russo and George Clooney in One Fine Day. And that movie is not particularly well directed, not particularly well written, but it's the chemistry between them. That really kind of makes that movie, and it's like, man, if you have that, you're like, you're like ninety percent of the way there. You you barely need to do anything else, you know.
0: Well, I it's seen a,
2: that. Oh, it's so good! Yeah, yeah, it's I've never,
1: it. I've never seen that either.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great, a great George Clooney performance. It's kind of similar to the performance he gives in uh, that Soderbergh movie, Out of Sight, but just in a pure romantic comedy. It's great. He's
3: fantastic.
1: Well, Going to chemistry, um, most of my stories pretty much will go back to to this guy. But Martin Scorsese, uh, when he was, I'm, I'll keep it to a minimum here. Um, <laughs> when he was casting Goodfellas and he had told Lorraine Bracco that he would call her eventually when she didn't get a part in one of his films uh, a few years before, her audition was basically he said, hey, come by the a house and have dinner. And Ray Liotta was there. And all he did was watch them for like twenty or thirty minutes while they're chit chatting, they're all having a glass of wine or something. And they're like, Oh, you got the part. And it's like that's yeah. how you do chemistry. Like you like you have an eye for the chemistry. Cause like you said, if you don't have that, the rest of it's just shit. It doesn't matter.
2: Right. Like, Good Goodfellas, one of the best love stories of our time, I would say.
1: You know what? I didn't say it was a romantic (laughs) comedy, (laughs) but hey, they did, they did stay together for a while. They were together for like 30 years for better or worse. Hey,
2: you know what? That's true. Okay. All right. So let's move on to some of these other movies. Um, I, I basically after trouble in paradise, um, uh, Lubitsch got so successful that in 1935, he was named, uh, Paramount's head of production, which had never happened, uh, with a director being named the head of production at a studio. And it's never happened since. And predictably, it was a complete disaster. He was overseeing about 60 movies a year. And Joseph von Sternberg said uh, about him at this time that he treated every movie like it was his own. And it was a very stressful period for him. And he um, and yeah, he basically uh, broke down and was fired a year later. And so when he was fired in 1936, his career started to go kind of downhill and he didn't have nearly as much control over his his movies at this time, and this is around the time when Bluebeard's Eighth Wife come out, uh, a Claudette Colbert, uh, Gary Cooper movie that Audrey you uh, specifically wanted to talk about. So uh, tell us about this movie.
3: Um, I think the reason I wanted to talk about it is just that I think it was the film, the Lubitsch film, that made me kind of realize what the real Lubitsch touch is. Which you know, if we're talking about just like script wise like writing that you know generally like Billy Wilder was doing, it's and the way that he describes it, it kind of just means that they they use props, <laughs> like they have props, and it ends up kind of being like Chekhov's gun, and they play a a role in the plot um, oh, okay. but I don't really think that that's what the true Lubitsch touch is. I do think it's this like ability to show people falling in love and this ability to show intimacy. And I think it's something that he maybe just kind of knows intuitively as a director, but like, even just like the use of like a lot of two shots and long scenes, which I also notice in Ninochka, Um, but it it makes these, you know, when you, you can actually see them falling in love and all of, you know, a lot of these scenes in this movie it's just the two of them together,
2: right? Right, John. What did you think about this movie? I uh,
1: I honestly enjoyed it. It was quick. It was. It was. I think I watched this right after uh, Nanochka. and um, yeah, I liked. Uh, mm-hmm. Honestly, not the biggest Gary Cooper fan. Uh, as we, we we kind of discussed off pod Oh, you're not either? Okay. So there's <laughs> No, nah, I didn't him. like
0: him.
1: <laughs> I, I don't particularly care for him normally, but in this film I thought it was just very quick. I liked his attitude. It kind of fit the character, but it was it was kind of um a bizarre movie. I, I, I like at one point he's literally spanking her. So it's like yeah. it's <laughs> like uh okay, okay, I guess this is uh this is all right. Um But yeah, so it was just it was such a different feel. I think this is of the five the most like strange feeling one to me, like in terms of their relationship. And we have to point out it was also written by Billy Wilder. Of the five movies he wrote, two of them, and this is one of them. So,
2: yeah, I um, I have to, I have to be. It's my turn to be the hater on this one. I, uh, (laughs) I, I don't know, man. I, I, I really didn't like this one. I think a lot of it comes back to the two leads like gary cooper i mean i don't i don't mind gary cooper in in certain movies but i just don't think the man was meant to be in an ernst Lubitsch movie he just doesn't have i so agree yeah like he just doesn't have the i don't know what uh he, he just doesn't have it and claudette colbert is strangely kind of miscast in a way too because i feel like she's she's giving her like classic claudette colbert like palm beach story it happened one night like she's giving all this energy and he's just like a fucking blank slate. And it it has a really weird effect on screen. I feel like.
3: I think he was miscast.
2: Yeah. yeah. I
3: think he was too cold. I, that's, that's kind of like what I feel like part of that chemistry comes down to is warmth. And I think she had it and I don't think he did. And I actually feel the same, I mean, kind of tangential, but I feel the same way about sunset Boulevard. I think that, uh, William Holden was miscast there as well. Just like too cold for that character.
2: Wow. That's a take right there.
3: (laughs) It is a take. And I love that movie.
1: Right. Well, maybe, maybe I'm just a sucker, but I thought he was, he was real. Like when he's trying to go to sleep and he's spelling it backwards, then he turns the lights on to read it again. Like, I don't know why there were some moments that I thought His body language really captured the comedy. Like, I wouldn't say he was great in it, but I don't know. I thought their whole relationship felt off in general. I don't know whose fault it was, per se, um, because I enjoyed the movie. Like, I, I really did enjoy it. But I do think, yeah, there was just something a little off. And then I have to wonder, was that the intent given the subject? Like right. was the intent that they should be a little off? I don't know.
2: Right. I mean, it's after all, it's called you know Bluebeard's eighth wife. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, when he's going down the line of women he's been married to, it's like, well, yeah. Well, now we're seeing like, like this is what it is. Like, so.
2: <laughs> yeah, I um, I, I you know, I this movie made me think of another um, uh, a movie from this time period, uh, or well, actually eight years earlier, but there's a 1930. Joseph von Sternberg movie uh, called Morocco um, and it's got uh, Gary Cooper and he plays opposite Marlene Dietrich and it's kind of uh, uh, I don't know really like uh, like kind of people butting heads like love affair like they're two just kind of like cold uh, really amoral people and it's kind of this like tragic romance and I feel like that if you're going to cast Gary Cooper as romantic lead, like that's the kind of the movie he needs to be in and that's the kind of person he needs to play opposite marlene dietrich as opposed to um Claudette colbert who is just kind of warm and bubbly and really doesn't doesn't fit in with him you know
3: i agree they they, they weren't they weren't totally matched but i think that's why i noticed the directing a lot more because <laughs> i could see how it was like the problems in the film did feel like with the acting. And I could see how with that directing and that editing, if there were different actors in those parts, it would have been really good.
2: <laughs> right. right. Like he's trying his best with, uh, you know, with maybe some subpar material uh, in, in this case, being the casting. Well, th- this brings up another Lubish thing that I want to talk about, especially as we transition into Ninochka. Um, Something that I was reading about and found out that, Apparently, Lubitsch, uh, which, you know, Audrey, as as an aspiring director, I'm sure you can speak on this as well, um, that you don't you don't give your actors line readings, you know, and uh, apparently Lubitsch would do way more than that. He would he would not only give them line readings, but literally perform the part for them and say, this is how you do it. And he would do that for all the characters, especially the two leads. Um so a lot of the success in Lubitsch's movies comes from there being that kind of a synchronicity between him as a performer slash director performing it. And then the actor being able to adapt it um, for the screen, which is an interesting technique that I've, I've never heard of any other director doing. But I can see how Gary Cooper would be faced with that and be like, what the fuck? Like, I'm not <laughs> doing this like you're doing it, you know, but this comes up in Ninochka because... Him and uh, Greta Garbo had a very uh, contentious relationship in this movie because he didn't have a lot of uh, clout at this time after failing um, in, in being the head of production at Paramount. And so basically, Garbo was more important. Greta Garbo was more important than him on this movie. And there's a quote where he says Greta Garbo is the most inhibited person I have ever worked with, and that she must be coaxed into playing a situation. But when the scene is finished, it is distinctive, not routine. You feel it as being born for the first time and has a freshness. So I think this was a very important um, working relationship for his career, not just artistically, because they kind of butted heads where he wanted her to perform a certain way and she wouldn't do it. But also, this movie literally saved his career. Like, he, it was a massive hit, and he was able to actually have creative control over his, uh, for the rest of his career because of this movie. So, Audrey, you said Donatska was your favorite. Um, I don't know. Tell us about it. What's, why is it so, uh, so important to you?
3: I, yeah, I do think it's my favorite. It's definitely in my top favorite movies. I find it very um, inspiring. I kind of just think it's a bit of like a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And I just taste wise, I love that it is kind of a combination of political satire and romantic comedy. Right. It's like two things I absolutely love. Um, I think it's like masterfully crafted. Um, I don't really have you know, like the way that we were kind of critiquing his other films I don't have that many like criticisms of Ninochka I really think it's like fantastic and I love their I love their chemistry and like I was saying like they're the intimacy that's able to be captured and the sort of like eroticism that's really lacking from films today but I think Pedro um, Almodovar talks about this a lot but the idea that you know a lot of our like big studio films they completely lack the eroticism that was really, I don't know, kind of intrinsic to that like classic Hollywood, um, you know, thing.
2: Yeah. There's this, uh, there's this great Michael Wilmington quote where he says that um, Lubitsch was amused by sex rather than frightened of it. And I think that says so much about like kind of puritanical, you know, production code, like American, uh, and of I mean, even, you know, to this day, the kind of um, puritanical attitude around sex and eroticism, whereas Lubitsch was just amused by it. He thought it was funny as opposed to someone like Hitchcock, who was, I mean, not just frightened of sex, but frightened of, of women just as a whole. Um, John, what did you think about Nanoshka?
1: I really enjoyed it. And honestly, one of the main things I enjoyed about it, as Audrey said, is the fact that you had some of this like political satire, which is right up my alley in terms of. Of especially the time period, the humor was there. Like with everything, I don't know. I, I thought their chemistry was good. I really like the first time they met was really good. Like Greta Garbo was fucking awesome
0: mm-hmm. in
1: this movie. Yeah, it's not my favorite, but it's definitely of the five we watched. But it's definitely up there because yeah, they had like you know, even talking a minute ago about about uh, Bluebeard's eighth wife. Uh, I thought they had the best chemistry. They may have the best chemistry. Of any couple of the five movies we watched, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. And I kind of agree. Yeah. You know, those early, I, th- I think a lot of it has to do with Garbo, to be honest. Like, the, the, those early scenes where she is just like so, you know, Soviet and closed down. And <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious. Like, her kind of deadpan responses to him being this kind of erudite, uh, you know, continental you know man you know love great lover or whatever and she's just like shutting him down at every opportunity i mean it's it's legit hilarious to me and i think it makes it even more impactful whenever she starts like opening up and starts having fun it's like i don't know it's really kind of adorable and heartwarming i think
1: well i mean it's kind of a robot learning to love scenario right um <laughs> right and uh, also, I can't believe I didn't notice this. So I'm going to tell you guys, I'm sure I'm sure one of you had to have noticed. Uh, Bella Lugosi was in this movie. I saw him in the
2: credits, but it, but I, I didn't recognize
1: him at the at, like in the movie Me either.
2: It I didn't as, recognize as him
0: at
3: all.
1: as as Rezinin, Um, if that's how you say Oh,
3: the guy who um, won't like who sends her off to uh, where did she go? The last place.
0: When she um, meets him again. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, when she has to go check on check on them. Yeah, I did not even notice. I don't know. That's crazy.
2: Yeah. Um God, what a movie. Yeah, Ninachka's pretty fucking great. Um
1: when he's telling jokes in the bar like it was so fucking good. Cause yeah. you've got this whole crowd like hanging on his word and she's just eating. She doesn't give a shit. And he tells this joke and everybody like, you know, bust the gut laughing and like there, and she's just sitting there. Like she was great. Like her comedy without even doing anything, which I think is usually the best sign of, of a person who knows how to do comedy. Like she was, she was flawless. Yeah. I,
3: that scene is so fantastic. Well, and also I also think he was great. Oh, yeah, he, he was had, he was really good. He reminds me a lot of like kind of a William Powell character. Mm. Like I feel like he could have been played by William Powell. But yeah, I just thought he was so charming. And so I don't know. I think it's interesting because they're obviously both supposed to be kind of these archetypes that represent you know like capitalism and you know communism but at the same time they felt like such real people and I think more so than maybe some of his other characters I mean I think the characters in to be or not to be really feel like real people as well um but that's also something that I really love about Ninochka
2: yeah, the I, I was thinking um, I, I remember I, I heard somebody like there was a, an interview that Peter Bogdanovich did about Lubitsch and he kept talking about the sophistication of the comedy and how like it's almost kind of mind blowing that this was mainstream kind of content back then. Like the fact that there was like a mainstream audience who like understood like the the central conflict between like like Russian, you know, and Karl Marx's reference. And even going back to uh, uh, Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, you know, the taming of the shrew is referenced, but never really explained, you know? And the, the the I don't know, which is basically pointing out that the the sophistication of these movies, nothing is dumbed down. Like, the, uh, this is for a mass audience who understood and loved these movies, uh, which, I don't know, it's fascinating to me, because I feel like nowadays, like, I mean, you, you you couldn't reference like the Taming of the Shrew without overly explaining it in a mainstream movie, or you you, you know a reference to Karl Marx, like you know that's I don't know, it's just really interesting. You well, have I mean, to I do it, like a
3: really oh, no, you can go ahead, just like a a really like Netflix, like so much exposition way, oh, like right. Karl Marx, like what is this and that, and he was born here, <laughs>
0: right,
3: right. um, yeah, yeah, that's that's I think.
1: Well, I was just going to say, I agree with you. Why I agree with you. That's what I was basically going to allude to was the fact that if they were to do it now, it would be like followed by an exposition dump because they have to make sure the audience understood what was going on. Right. And that's what's so fucking annoying about references made today. Like this director, the writer, they clearly were like, look, the audience is either going to get it or they're not. We don't care. But if it's done today, it's like you you never can have a reference without someone coming back to it, either in the same shot or maybe 10 minutes later, and like basically giving you this exposition dump just to make sure you didn't miss what they were saying. Right.
3: You know where they did that a lot on is um, the new Aaron Sorkin movie, The Chicago 7. There were so many like references followed by a ton of exposition.
1: I, I cannot bring myself to watch that. I, I don't. I have some block right now. I'm not sure why. I'm just like, I can't take another award season Netflix movie right now. I can't do it.
2: Hold on. I want to
1: watch it, but
2: yeah, hold on now. You need you have to cop you have to cop to being an Aaron Sorkin lover, though.
1: Oh, I am a hardcore Aaron Sorkin lover. I will die on the West Wing Hill forever. I fucking <laughs> love that show. And I'm pretty anti-government and I still love that show. But um, <laughs> But yeah, this one I just can't get on board with. I hated this poker movie, to be fair. It was pretty crappy. So.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't like it either.
1: I mean, wasn't
2: he. Isn't he like married to her? Like, didn't he just essentially make a movie about his wife? Or, or they were in a relationship at least?
3: I don't know. What? I didn't know that. He's in a relationship with Amy Adams. Wasn't that who that was? No, it was. Uh... Who's that actress? It was
2: uh, Jessica
1: Chastain. No, 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 with
2: the real like with the real woman that the movie is about. Oh,
3: really?
1: Yeah, he was wow. in a
2: relationship, Molly uh, Bloom I think is her name, the woman who she was like a CIA agent and then she was doing poker games and shit. Yeah, like he was in a relationship with her and basically wrote the movie like with her and about her. It's like it, Wow. Yeah, I can't imagine I I, I just <laughs> I just can't imagine what that pillow talk was like. Um <laughs> But no, I I agree with you about like the Sorkin' really talking. Yeah, yeah, like but I agree with you about like the Sorkin nature of that. Like like Aaron Sorkin will, will make a reference to like, you know, uh Beethoven or whatever, Beethoven's ninth, and then right after that some character will go, You mean a symphony that's considered the greatest symphony of all time.
1: Interesting. (laughs) Hey, I'll tell you this though, as a youngster watching West Wing, I learned a lot because of that kind of exposition dump because Martin, (laughs) Martin Sheen was like so fucking smart. Like his character as Jedediah, he was so smart. So he would name something and then someone would need it to explain to them because it was so smart and went over everyone's head. So as a kid, I'm just sitting there. I'm like, okay, I know that now. I don't remember any of it now, but that's not the point.
2: <laughs> and that is well, something
1: what, I
3: like.
2: Oh, I, just, um, <laughs> I think that's what great I'm, drama is when you're explaining, you know, basic concepts to children. You know, that's that's what great drama is. <laughs> you know,
3: I think something I really love about because we we're talking about the thick of it is that they make so many references that and they just never explain them. And then I have to look them up. And it is very funny. But it's I like it a lot better. It's like if you're really curious, you can just look it up. I do think it's better for drama because I think it flows better. Yeah,
1: Um, I I will point out it was unnecessary for you to just find a way to bash Aaron Sorkin here. So (laughs) whatever.
2: (laughs) Uh, I like
3: the West Wing.
1: Thank you. See, thank you. I have a West Wing yeah. lover on here. So look,
2: look look, the West Wing is good television. Okay, don't get me wrong, but Aaron Sorkin is a bad writer and I won't be convinced otherwise.
1: <laughs> I'm going to edit all this out, so whatever.
3: <laughs> this Chicago 7 movie you should watch because it was pretty bad.
1: Yeah, I'm but- I'm going to. Also, it's hard for me to picture Borat as like this community leader. Like it's come on, dude. Like I don't know what you're doing in this movie. Like, whatever.
3: Jeremy Strong was really funny.
1: I love Jeremy Strong, like man. That dude is so good.
3: He's so talented. I'm obsessed with Succession.
1: I oh. need to watch that. Everyone keeps telling me to watch it, and I have not had the time, but I've heard oh, it is fantastic.
2: Yeah, Succession, I think, is another one of those. Um, I don't know. I have issues with the way it's written, and like I think it maybe thinks it's more clever than it is. But like, just the world. Oh, Really? Yeah, I don't know. I, I John gets on to me gets on to me for this all the time. Where like I have a real problem with like clever dialogue. Like I feel like not everybody can do it, and I I don't know. I feel like it's either I don't know. Jesus lives in your heart or he doesn't. You know what I mean? Like you're <laughs> good at it or you're not.
1: And like I think you're just a teacher, and the teacher in you comes out too often, <laughs> and you're trying to ruin the joy for all of us. <laughs>
2: <laughs> look! Look! You know what? Yeah, fine. I'll pull fucking rank. I teach writing for a living and I'll just say it. You know, there's <laughs> bad writing out there. I think succession, you know, it's just the Joss Whedon effect. It's like people think they're more clever than they are. And it's like, you know what's good writing? Sopranos. You know what's clever writing? Mad Men. And that's about it, to be honest. Oh, I
3: totally disagree. What? I think it's, I think succession is way better than Mad Men. And oh, I didn't really no. like the Sopranos. Oh,
1: um, <laughs> uh, God. Oh, God. We're gonna we're going to have to we're going to have to just uh yeah, we're going to have to edit all that out. Um I just had I just had an aneurysm.
3: <laughs> I didn't like, like I watched all of Mad Men. I I when I had mono in college, I binged all of Mad Men and I did love it. And having watched all of Succession, I think it's so much better and I do think it's better written.
1: Well, I will say I will say Mad Men is more of my co-host love, but uh, saying uh, The Sopranos, however, um, I mean, I, I think The Sopranos are the greatest, is the greatest television show in the history of television. So it's, um, I don't know. It's, yeah.
2: Yeah. That was just like a stab to the gut to both of us, Audrey, like for, you know, Mad Men for me and Sopranos for him. So, you know.
1: Just like a wounded animal going to go die in the woods somewhere. <laughs> Uh, hey, right.
3: that's how it is. I do think, I mean, I have no idea why I didn't like it, but I just didn't. I got bored of The Sopranos and I did like Mad Men, but I have no desire to, for instance, like rewatch it in the way that I do with Succession. I'll totally rewatch Succession.
1: Well, I will say when it comes to some shows, like, I can separate myself enough to say, like, I'm obsessed with Sopranos like on an unhealthy level. (laughs) I've loved it since it came out, but I'm also obsessed with like the mafia like thing. Like I I love mafia movies. I love real life stuff. I've read a ton of books. Like, so I can separate it enough to be like, I get it. Like if you're not into the lifestyle, like I I guess I could see a way where you don't like it. Um, So, I mean, yeah. I get it. I got to
2: take for you. Well, first of all, let me just translate that. Uh, you don't actually get it, and you're really like fuming on the inside. But you won't. No, to-
1: I'm not. I'm not fuming. I feel great.
2: <laughs> you're trying to be nice to our guests, <laughs> but like, can I? Can I? I got to take for you. Can I just say that something as cool as the mafia should not be wasted on a people that are as lame as the Italians?
1: You know what I mean. <sighs> You know what? I'm not gonna I you, you find a way to bash the people like you know you don't like Australians, you don't like Italians, I don't know what to do here. Let's just get back to Lubitsch. <laughs> I'm
2: just saying, like the mafia should have been like an Irish phenomenon or like a Jewish phenomenon, you know, some respectable people.
3: I I do think the mafia, I I kind of agree with what you were saying about if you're not into the lifestyle, I don't really care about the mafia. I don't think it's quite as interesting as like billionaires, (laughs) Mm. but that's just like a, it just is like what you're into. Like, I think maybe I just like watching like rich people do things.
1: Hey, I love that too. (laughs) That's why I can't believe I haven't watched, I haven't watched the show yet because I love, I love shit about rich people just like being conniving and devious. Like that shit is awesome. So
3: Yeah, I don't love the pilot, but if you you do have to watch a few episodes, but it is I think the reward is really great, and the second season I think is like both the best drama and the best comedy on TV right now.
1: Well, I will definitely have to watch it because yeah, like I said, I've been (laughs) for some reason putting it off, but I will uh, I will move it up the list. (laughs) All right,
2: well, let's move on to something that we can all agree about, uh, which is the Lubitsch movie from 1940. Uh, I think the shop around the corner with Jimmy Stewart um, and Margaret shit. What is her name? Uh, Margaret Sullivan, Margaret Sullivan. Right. Um, so let's talk about shop around the corner a little bit. I, I think this is, um, this is notable uh, because uh, there's this quote that the Lubitsch has about him making shop around the corner, because this is the first uh, movie That he really got to kind of have his way with um, post, you know, getting fired from being head of production at Paramount. Um, And he says, uh, quote, no one used to care how characters made their living. If the picture was amusing, now they do care. They want their stories tied up to life. People nowadays have to make their living. And so what Lubitsch, I think, is responding to here, I think he's responding to a kind of fatigue for movies about rich people. Um it, it, that, that happened in the 1930s, obviously throughout the course of the 1930s, the Great Depression, and so forth. And in in the 40s, Hollywood changed. It was no longer glamorous portraits of rich people and stuff. And it became more sombre. You know, World War II happened, film noir is invented in the 1940s. And so uh and, and Frank Capra obviously put out It's a Wonderful Life in 46. But, um, he, uh, also directed some more like working class movies in the late thirties. And so, uh, I'm interested, um, what, what did you guys think about the shop around the corner and what is the difference between this and kind of the earlier Lubitsch work? Because one of the very first, like, like lines of dialogue in this movie is someone saying, I can't afford this. This is Lubitsch's first movie about working class people, um, so yeah, I don't know. Audrey, thoughts on uh, Shop Around the Corner?
3: It's interesting because I do think even though it's kind of his first movie about working class people, his even his movies about rich people are kind of class conscious. Like I do that. Like for instance, Innocent is all kind of about class in a way. Right. In you know. Capitalism and communism And so I don't actually think it's that much Of a leap for him I do think it's just maybe exploring Kind of like the other side
1: Yeah I mean uh, I don't I don't necessarily think I wouldn't say it's a leap I just think he kind of flexes it A bit more in this film Opposed to his others um, But he does lean on it pretty heavily Like it is something that he It's clear that he wants that to be involved in the conversation it's not just about these two people and their relationships and i mean this movie was interesting because of the five we watched i believe it has the best ensemble in terms of having this unique feel everyone kind of like you could specifically point to each character and name a trait about them like there were so many things in this film i mean it's it might be my favorite i'm not 100 percent sure But there were so many things he did in a different way, in some ways improved opposed to the other ones. Uh, Yeah, I I loved it. I mean, I I think it's kind of a home run all the way around, honestly.
3: Jimmy Stewart's a cutie pie in it, for sure.
1: Well, I'll tell you, that kind of gave – I'm a huge Jimmy Stewart fan. So, like, seeing he was in it, I was just, like, already, like – it was already giving the movie a a push because it's like, yeah, I'm going to like this a hundred percent just because he's in it. It's just a matter of how much. So.
3: He has the sincerity to him that I think is really kind of like great to see on screen and kind of like intoxicating.
1: Yeah. That's what's so crazy. Yeah. Like he has like one of my favorite films of all time is the man who shot Liberty Valance. And he has something he brings to the table and that movie, I believe like it's like peak Stewart in terms of of him being caught between like this hardcore masculine character and like this hardcore like alpha evil character. Like he he brought something to the table and this he's kind of just so genuine and so endearing. And uh, that's pretty much classic Stewart. But sometimes he can just remind you this is what I do pretty much better than anyone else. And uh, yeah, I he was so good in this movie. Jacob, are you there? It's
0: interesting.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Get> some dead <laughs> air there. <laughs> uh. What were you about to say, Audrey?
3: Oh, it's just—it is interesting to me the because of it, like this is kind of like the basis for you've got mail, right? In a lot of ways,
1: right. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I've, yeah. never, I've never really watched that all the way through, but I could see it.
3: Which I don't I don't think it's a very, like, I don't really like it. <laughs> oh. And so it's interesting what they chose to kind of take from it. It is kind of like just the plot. And I do think they kind of, I don't know, like kind of remakes of like Lubitsch films and also what I've noticed about like remakes of like Cougar films as well is they do kind of like just take elements of the plot and they kind of lose that special feeling that these films had.
2: Yeah. I think you've got mail is basically like shop around the corner, but for yuppies, you know, like nineties, like, uh, (laughs) like yuppie characters. Um,
1: isn't that where they like email each other and they don't know what each other looks like or something? I don't really know. When they
3: run people. like rival bookstores. right? <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah,
2: <laughs> That's actually really, that tells you a lot about how just how like uh, the film industry has changed where like the characters in shop around the corner are like literally like retail workers and the characters in, uh, in uh, you've got mail are like bookstore owners. Yeah. Um,
1: Nobody yes. gives a shit about the working class. We want to know what the owners are doing. <laughs>
3: right. Which hey, I mean Well, yeah. it's also interesting, it's a lot more individualized. Like something that's interesting about Chop Around the Corner is and that I've noticed having like worked retail, they do really care about each other and the business. Right. Um, in a way that I think amplifies the love that the couple has for each other specifically. Because you see them in kind of just like this loving communal environment and that's kind of the attitude that they take toward their work whereas I do think in the 90s like with the onset of neoliberalism you see people more individualized and their conception of capitalism and of workers is competition rather than helping each other and learning to help each other
2: right right absolutely um yeah the, the the um the conception of the, the, the shop in the shop around the, the titular shop in shop around the corner. Um, yeah, like it's like the office, you know what I mean? It's like, everybody's like kind of one big family and you don't, you know, you don't really get to choose your coworkers. Uh, and so you might as well, you know, kind of make a little makeshift, uh, family with them. And it, uh, it's really heartwarming. John, we were talking about that scene at the end. Um, with the, with the goose and everything. And like, it was just, uh, it was so like heartwarming. And so, um, I don't know. I I find this movie just profoundly moving. I mean, genuinely. And there's an element of sadness in it too, because it's like, how close were these people not to ending up together? You know what I mean? Like David Thompson has a thing where he says, this is like, this is a movie that like stings with the idea that like good people, can miss their chances to be happy almost by accident. And it's, I don't know, man, it, it's this, this movie's incredible. I think, I think it's a, a absolute masterpiece.
1: Well, I was almost, I was almost more interested in the, in Frank Morgan's character like than I was in anything else. They did a really good job with him. Speaking of owners, um, they did a really good job with him in general because Like as the viewer, I was sucked in like, why is he mistreating, you know, Stuart's character and then things. And then obviously the attempt at suicide really changes things. It was like that hardcore apartment moment where, uh, where someone just tried to off
0: themselves.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was so good. Like, honestly, like, uh, the end of it, I consider myself a pretty hardened, apathetic individual but the end of it managed to chisel the stone away because I was like God just go eat with him man like nobody gives a fuck what your plans are everyone just needs to go to this guy's house and hang out with him he just tried to blow his brains out for God's sakes like, what are you doing yeah
2: and like even though everything ends up like relatively happy like still like the man the man's wife you know was having an affair with his like he's still like in danger of ending up alone on Christmas or whatever even like I don't know. There's, there's still like this melancholy that's there, um, even though everything ends, you know, pretty, very, pretty happily. Um,
1: it was so great to see that uh, that asshole get shoved down in the store, and especially <laughs> by, especially by <laughs> character. Yeah, it was yeah, like, yeah, go. this is what we need. This is it. So <laughs> um,
3: it's interesting what you're saying about melancholy because I feel like a lot of people attack Lubich as kind of like too lighthearted or too sort of like one dimensional. And I think the idea that you have this romantic comedy that ends quite happily, but you do have this undertone of sadness that is not over explained. Right. I think that's like a level of depth that is not often appreciated.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, movies these days are afraid not to sound like the old man yelling at the the <laughs> void here, but But a lot of, like, romantic comedies and and movies in general, like, they forget that there's winners and losers. Like, that is life. Like, this is what we do. So with Lubitsch, not just in this film, but you can find a touch of it and and probably all the ones we watched to where it's like, yeah, these people almost missed each other. But then they, they connected and, like, all is real with the world. But you've got this other side character who, like, regardless of what happens tonight, tomorrow... He's going to wake up. His wife is still gone because she cheated on him. Like, so it's not like I'm trying to beat you over the head with it, but Lubitsch is still being like, well, this is life. This is what, this is what we do. Like, this is what happens. And that's really what I left, what I was left feeling at the end of it was that. And yeah,
2: I, I think you touched on it too. When you talked about the end of trouble in paradise, like, you know, regardless of, of how well you buy the relationship with Kay Francis, like, like at the end of the day, like, she's alone you know like at the end of that like she gets to experience this you know kind of romance and then she realizes she's been kind of she's been had you know like it's it's kind of devastating and it's also like you said with in the scene in the car at the end of uh, trouble in paradise where it's like oh cool we don't trust each other like like there's like this dark element to it that you know like once the movie is over it only takes you a second to realize like wait that was kind of fucked up you know
0: yeah
3: no, when i feel was- like that kind of relates to like what you were saying about lubich um having kind of just like a light-hearted attitude towards sex in general and i do think all of his characters kind of do that when they're cheated on right they are upset but it's not in any kind of deep way.
0: Right, right. It is
3: kind of like a surface level upset, which I think allows then you to like still uh, appreciate the characters who have cheated. Right. Um,
2: it's not the end of the world. Yeah.
3: It's not the end of the world for any of them. And it's it's interesting. And I do think it comes down to them all being kind of self-centered.
1: Right. Am I the way. only person? Am I the only person who was struggling to separate Frank Morgan from Wizard of Oz? Um, oh yeah, because because yeah, was I was re- I was really struggling with that for a bit.
2: Well, you know, speak just speaking of the cheating thing, that's really interesting because like the the guy who actually cheats with his wife, the 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 worker, I can't remember his name, um, but he, like we kind of don't hate him for cheating we really just hate him for being like a kiss ass you know like <laughs> like the like when you think about it it's like i don't hate the guy because he cheated i hate the i hate him because he's always like brown nosing and always like just kind of a smug asshole um
3: when i think the same's true for the wife too we it's like we don't even hate her for cheating we hate her for like mistreating the errand boy
0: Right.
1: <laughs> By the way, when when the errand boy gets his moment, that was yeah. gold. When he's just like, "Oh, he, I'll take he this." Great. He was really good. His voice, like the way he would change his pitch depending on what he was <laughs> doing, it's fucking great.
2: Yeah, when he becomes uh the clerk or whatever, it's like, I mean, top 10 success stories of all time. I mean, like he like <laughs> that was just incredible. Like and to see the, just the way he like held himself like now that he was You know, now that he had gotten a promotion, yeah, it's so good. Okay. All right. So uh, you guys want to move on to to be or not to be. Um, Yeah. This uh, look, this was and I love really all of these movies. Uh, Even Bluebeard's Eighth Wife is, you know, I mean, come on, it's a Lubitsch movie. Um, But I think this was my favorite. There's almost no context that can be given for this. This is kind of completely (laughs) singular in his own career. And in really cinema itself, like I've name a movie like this, like you say, you can say maybe, oh, okay, The Great Dictator, you know, Chaplin making fun of Hitler, but it's not even remotely the same. And it's, I don't know, man, I fucking love this movie. I don't even know what to say about it. It's such a work of genius, I think. Um, Audrey, what did you think of this one?
3: I totally agree. My favorite kind of story about this movie is that Jack Benny's dad went to go see it and was so offended by the first scene of seeing his son in a Nazi uniform and walked out. And then basically Jack Benny like convinced him to watch the whole movie and it became his favorite movie and he saw it like a billion times.
0: Oh, that's incredible.
3: (laughs) But it is, it's like this kind of like satire that was so, I think it was so um poignant for the time it was like two it's like 39 i think Mm. right or 42 it was really early to be making fun of nazis right but it was so prescient it's it's wonderful
1: yeah i mean i i think this i don't know if this is my favorite one or shop around the corner but i will say i don't know if you two will agree or disagree but I think it's by far the funniest of the five. Yeah. Like it is yeah. It is just a laugh every 30 seconds. Jack Benny is a god in this movie. His delivery, his body language, everyone's comedic timing. I mean, everybody was on point. I mean, it, it got to the point where it didn't even matter that you kind of knew what was coming. When When the guy walks out every time he says to be or not to be like it didn't matter because you're just you're just gonna be like this is the funniest shit I've ever seen in my life Like, well the funny thing
2: is that it's a different guy <laughs> like yeah <laughs> uh, wait
3: I didn't even get that it's a different guy it's not the
2: yeah it's not the same guy God, it it's a different so guy because the, 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 the guy the same guy that was walking out is still in the front row and you like expect him to walk out but it's not it's a different guy like three rows
1: behind it that's
3: so funny I know <laughs> I did not get that. Now I now I appreciate this movie even more than I did, which was a lot.
1: Well, it's funny because I'm watching it and I'm like I remember like being in high school and shit doing plays and it's like it did throw you off when you're like looking at the audience and someone leaves and you're like, "Oh god, is it me?" Right. Like, did they did they hate my character and they couldn't stand to be in the same room with me?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, as someone who has acted with you in the past, I can say that you're uh your Cary Grant impression in arsenic and old lace. I mean, who would walk out during that, you know,
1: um, your, your false, uh, praise will get you nowhere, sir. That's so. not a false praise. You were really good. Well, thank you for that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, anyway, dude, Jack, Whoa, Biddy- hold,
2: on. No, no, hold on for, for, for the listeners me and Jonathan were in a production of our, and for Audrey, obviously you don't know us. (laughs) Uh, me and Jonathan were in a high school production of arsenic and old lace. And uh, John, you played the Cary Grant character. Um, And I think you were really good. I was the uh, Peter Laurie uh, Einstein character. Uh, And let's just say my professor Einstein had uh, some shifting accents. His, his accent was all over the map in my performance. Um, (laughs) And the, uh, <laughs> God, should we tell this on the, on the podcast? I see why not.
1: I think uh, we've already told it about the rewriting. Have we? Yeah, I think so. You could tell Audrey though, cause she oh, doesn't, okay. doubt does, she knows. So.
2: All right. Well, Audrey. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so we perform Arsenic and Old Lace and it was, uh, you know, it was whatever. Well, the second night, um, we kind of like, it got like caught up in like improv lines, you know?
1: No, hold on. <laughs> hold on. There's no weed. <laughs> There's no we. I was a professional as I've been in every play I was in. Uh, You got caught up in improv or something.
2: Okay. Well, I got caught up with improv lines. And so I uh, convinced everybody to change the ending of the play Uh, in the middle of the production. Like as people were coming back, I was like, you know, it'd be funny. It'd be fucking hilarious. And so it ended up being this complete disaster. Um but people loved it, you know? People responded. They thought it was funny. Uh, but our teacher did not, and she threatened to expel me. So,
1: uh... <laughs> uh, Well, there's copyright issues. I mean, there's numerous issues with it. Um, <laughs> right. But just to be clear,
2: but I that, not...
3: Isn't that protected by parody law? you
1: know
0: yeah that's true yeah. that's we true were i was doing
2: a parody that no one knew but me and yeah that was
1: i had nothing to do with it i was acting my heart out on that stage and uh yeah <laughs> well <laughs> so... you,
2: never, you never came off stage because you were like the lead role and so like people were just like coming on and like changing lines and stuff and you were just like what the fuck is going on <laughs>
1: yeah it was it was <laughs> interesting <laughs>
2: all right anyways uh that's neither here nor there um to be or not to be great movie
1: uh yeah i mean there.
2: carol Lumber.
1: yeah she i was about to say she was so good like playing playing back and forth especially when robert stack as sabinski would come in the room and like he fell in love with her so fast and she's like what the fuck is going on like (laughs) like i have a husband like it was uh god it was so good like this was the first one i watched and i was like Man, I haven't watched this since I was a kid, and I just remember being like, This is so fun like everything is still so funny. Nothing changed uh from from how it was when I was younger. So it's fucking great.
3: It's so funny. The timing's very modern. Like right. it's very it's very quick.
1: Absolutely. They didn't I- give a shit. I mean, speaking of exposition, they didn't give a shit about breathing room. They were just right. like, This is what we're doing. <laughs> There's a lot of
2: times
3: well, it- inter- Oh, sorry, go ahead that part in the middle with kind of like exposition of what was happening with the underground and stuff I read was actually added in later. And you can totally tell, that it's not, it doesn't really belong there. You don't really need to like know all this stuff about the underground because it's not really about them. It's about these
1: actors. (laughs) It really, it really broke the flow. Like as things were moving along, it kind of just like, it didn't bring things to a halt, but it definitely slowed the train of momentum down.
2: It's also for, for being exposition, it's not completely clear exactly what's going on in the middle because like he runs away and then all of a sudden she is like putting the thing in the book and it's like, wait, what happened? But my favorite scenes are, which I mean, of course, are the funniest scenes are the, the, just the scenes where they're impersonating, you know, the Nazi troops and, uh, and Jack Benny, like there's one scene. I, I can't even remember the, I meant to write it down, but I can't even remember the details of it. Um, where he is like, like the the guy is questioning him on like things he should know if he was that person, and like he's <laughs> just like making shit up. And then somebody asks him like something, and he goes, "Yes, I think I can say that without hesitation." <laughs> and it's so oh, he asked
3: about Hitler's Hitler's uh like home,
0: oh right, right, right. garden yeah. or
3: whatever. He's like, "Is it really as beautiful as as they say it?" Is? Right, and he's right. Like, yes i think i can say
2: that without any yeah like you can see him like working it out in his mind like yeah i don't think i'm not gonna have any problem with saying that it's beautiful yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah
1: i just love how he continued to sabotage himself especially when he's speaking to the professor and like they start talking about his wife and like he just couldn't let it go it was almost like a um it kind of you know not to go back to the office but it was so michael scott like Honestly, right. when I was watching it, it's like, dude, you're almost in the clear, but you just can't let this go. Like, you can't <laughs> just be like, OK, I get it. I get it. And like, then you just fuck it all up. So,
2: I mean, for as great as like Lubitsch is. And obviously, I mean, this, you know, this movie, I mean, you know, he is a genius, et cetera, et cetera. But Jack Benny is doing a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. Like, it, like this is a really an astonishing performance by him because he's he's carrying a lot of the like comedic weight uh, because there are like scenes where like he's the only person on screen that's doing anything funny. And there's like a straight man opposite him. And like, I don't know, it's just a really incredible comedic performance.
3: I totally agree. It's really interesting to me that he doesn't have like his other movies weren't very successful for the most part. Like I've listened to his, his radio show a lot too. Like, and it's very funny and it's also part of that is that he has, there's a lot of other characters like that are funny to play off of. Right. But yeah, I don't know. I, maybe it's just that this movie was like well written or like Lubitsch is like a good director, but his other movies were not particularly critically successful or entertaining.
2: Right. I mean, and if it's, you know, if, 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 if Lubitsch um, if his reputation on set is to be like, if it it carried through to this late stage in his career, um, then I mean, weird to assume that he acted out all of this stuff for Jack Benny and Jack Benny, like acted it out on screen. So like, I don't know, I I would love to see like footage of those, that Lubitsch direction, obviously, that's impossible, but I would just love to see it to be able to compare like. You know, how much was Jack Benny adding on to what Lubitsch was giving him? And how much was he kind of trying to adhere to what Lubitsch was doing? I don't know. It's just it's questions we'll never get the answer to. But it's interesting to think about because it's such an incredible performance.
3: Well, and I think the role was written for him, actually. And he had such a sort of, like, established character as a comedian that was this kind of, like, vain actor who lived in Beverly Hills. Right,
0: right. And
3: so I think it's because Lubitsch, I think, maybe, like, appreciated that Jack Benny character so much. He was able to write something that was, I think, just natural to Jack Benny. Like, he seems like the same Jack Benny that he was sort of as like a comedian as the public figure as like a vaudeville performer
2: right right i, I mean i guess that is i mean i guess uh, not i guess i mean that's the that's the kind of what late night writers do right like a- adhere their kind of uh creative ideas through you know someone else's like kind of instrument um which i mean it it fucking works here man this this movie is great um yeah so uh so that's Ernst Lubitsch, folks. He's uh, I don't know if you've heard, but he's pretty good. He's a pretty good director. Um, <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I mean, the, the thing about all five of these films is the fact that even even the ones that one of us didn't care for or, or whatever, like they all five hold up really well, in my opinion. And, and honestly, any of them could be watched and pretty much hold its own to pretty much any studio comedy today, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I think that's saying a lot.
3: I think considerably better than studio comedies today, but I could be wrong. I could just be being negative.
1: No, (laughs) I I, I would, I would tend to agree with you. I was trying not to sound too negative. So uh, now that that you've said it, yeah, I will agree because you have a ton of comedies that are made. They're just churned out and yeah, they're funny. Like I could probably name 20 comedies I've watched in the last few years that are just, they're really funny, but that's because I've lowered the bar. Like I said earlier with Palm Springs to where it's like, just make me laugh. I don't expect anything else. When I walk into this theater and watch this movie, just make me laugh a few times. And, and that's it. So that's pretty much what the studio system has done to us. Is it's just beaten us down to this point.
2: Yeah. It's, it's like what Tarantino talks about when he talks about like, uh, and Nick Pinkerton has been tweeting about this a lot lately um, about just kind of like television, you know, like the, the, televisionization of movies you know where like
3: yeah
0: like
2: it's not you know it's not really a movie it's just kind of like a two-hour long tv show you know you can look at your phone and you can your eyes don't have to be on the screen really to to kind of get the movie and kind of you know hear like the funny parts or whatever and like you know that's really it whereas something like this is i mean these are whole cinematic experiences where you know, every frame and every cut and every
1: shot is designed to
2: tell a story and to be funny at the same time. You know,
1: I mean, except for Trouble in Paradise, but who's counting? Oh my <gasps> god! All right, well, fuck off. This...
2: I do
3: to- totally. I do totally um, agree with you. I do think it's like a an attention to detail right. that I find particularly impressive. And I do. I mean, honestly, part of it might be. You know, I'm sure people get paid very well to do studio comedies but at the same time you know Lubitsch and billy wilder just like had an office on i think it was like paramount or whatever they just went to every day and tried to perfect every scene right and it was this like yeah just like attention to quality rather than quantity and you know very like deliberate shots and all of these things that i think are yeah, lost on like the televisionization of film and like the idea that like everything on Netflix like looks the same in spite of like being all different genres.
0: Right.
1: (laughs) And I I think that's kind of the problem. Like you kind of just hit the nail on the head is the fact that Netflix has kind of like made everything homogenous. Like it's all melded together and it's just like, this is it. Like this is the product. There's no more... I should say there's very few unique fillings anymore. There's very few unique looking films in terms of writing or how this film is going to make me react. Like it's bit after bit. You have your acts. They're very clear cut. This is it. You know, this is the end of it. Yeah. It's pretty formulaic. That's pretty much every fucking movie that Netflix puts out. And it's kind of bleeding over into the industry because who is going to look at Netflix and see that it works and not be like, this is what we're doing. So,
2: Right. It reminds me of like um, the, the, the show, em- which I know this is probably low hanging fruit, but I mean, you know, we're still, I mean, all Lubitsch movies were mainstream studio movies. It's not like he was some kind of like independent, like underground artist or whatever. So, I mean, I don't think it's crazy to compare um, Lubitsch's movies to this, but I- I'm thinking about the latest Netflix series, Emily in Paris. And I remember, like, I started watching it because I was like, "Well, Lily Collins is attractive, and I'm a sucker for like these high definition shots of like Paris and shit." Like, sure, let's let's do it. And like again, low hanging fruit, but it's so it's so bad that it's almost hard to (laughs) hard to even kind of talk about without being like like like. Sometimes I just wanted to like pause it and be like, okay. I know this was meant to be funny, but what, like explain the joke to me. You know what I mean? Like, like somebody will be like, uh, that's random. And you're just like, what? Like what's random? Like, I don't, I I don't understand this on a basic level. It's just like noise in the background, you know? And it's, uh, I don't know. It, 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 it's maybe that's not fair to compare the two, but I mean, they're, they're mainstream entertainment, you know, there's no reason why, Emily in Paris can't be charming and fun and interesting. Um,
3: yeah. I, don't know. I agree. I mean, it does feel like it's so like it was so bad that it's punching down to make fun of it, but it was also very successful. So right. in that way, it's not, I feel like punching down.
2: Yeah. I mean, people are, I mean, they're going to make a season two. People are making money to write this and produce <laughs> it and direct it. Like, Netflix- what is this show?
1: What is it even about? I've never even heard of it.
3: Oh God. You need <laughs> to watch it. I mean, <laughs> cause it is, I do think, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty wild.
2: <laughs> it's it's exactly kind of what we're talking about, about, like, bad modern romantic comedies. But, like, I mean, honestly, you know, the more I think about it, the Lubitsch comparison is not that far off. Because, I mean, this is, we're supposed to be, it, it takes place in the life of a fairly glamorous, you know, uh, Parisian, uh, you know, fashion house or whatever. And, you know, sh- like, it's a romantic comedy and, like, it just it's so bad it, and so like Netflix eyes you know it's so like it I can't explain it but it looks this like you said it look they all look the same even they're all different genres how is this possible you know
1: well good thing you weren't it's
3: the pitch man
2: for
1: this show so <laughs>
3: <laughs> it is kind of like Nanochka in that it's yeah set in Paris and she is kind of like just like wants to like work all the time. <laughs> She's American, right? And he kind right. like her random like hookups or whatever teach her how to like have fun and be Parisian. It's it is kind of similar in that way,
0: right? Right, and it, it's, it's
3: trying to make glamorous. It's like also it's like how can you like make Paris so unglamorous as it appears in Emily in Paris,
2: right? Like why does it look like Toronto? Like, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it's. Look, if we go on about this, we're going to end up you know, killing ourselves because of the state of the industry. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, I'll say this, I'll uh, we can wrap this up, um, but I do well, this, say,
1: this pretty much means Netflix will never be a sponsor. So way to go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, Netflix, if you're listening, we will take your money. Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, OK, so, yeah, I want to I want to see this. I want to read this quote from from him because You know, there's also this kind of other thing. Obviously, we've been appreciating Lubitsch quite a bit, but there's also this other strain that is like, well, is Lubitsch really a serious artist? You know, he made these romantic comedies, you know, Uh, you know, who cares? But um, I don't know. I think it's important to recognize that, you know, there's no reason why, for instance, Emily in Paris or some like random, like shitty studio product cannot be sophisticated and interesting. And and this quote uh, from Lubitsch, I think is great. He says, as soon as someone tackles a big theme with a message, we take him seriously and call it art. We appreciate a painting of the crucifixion. Whereas a simple Cezanne depiction of a vase and an apple may be far more enduring as art. I believe, and I'm not comparing myself to Cezanne in taking a lesser theme and treating it without compromise. And I love that quote because there's there's no reason why, you know, the random sitcoms and random studio products of today, there's no reason why their creators cannot treat them with the same um, seriousness and dedication as Lubitsch did to his uh, his narratives, which I mean, frankly, came out of like Austrian operas and stuff, you know, and romance novels, and uh, and he he is a serious artist, uh, you know, in much the same way that, uh, I don't know, Orson Welles would be or whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's my wrap up on Lubitsch. Anything else on, on Lubitsch you guys got? Well, oh, I, mean, I would I-
3: just say that I totally, oh, I totally agree that he's a serious artist. I think like more so than a lot of directors. And I do think like his warmth and intimacy kind of sets him apart from a lot of directors that are maybe more often appreciated by the mainstream. Like, for instance, like Stanley Kubrick, like, I think is really cold and I don't really like his films. And I do think this kind of, like, unique warmth and also, like, attention and desire for excellence is really unique and marks him as... I think yeah, a very serious artist.
2: I agree. I, I'm also a Kubrick uh skeptic and I will take I'll take bit <laughs> over Kubrick every fucking day of the week, man. Like it's this is this is a guy who's making movies about like what it means to be human,
1: you know? And uh how did we get here? How did we get to batching <clears throat> Kubrick? um
3: (laughs) sorry i just have to put it in i just have to bash kubrick at least once a day
1: hell yeah uh no i respect that um
3: so no in terms of
2: back on to do an anti-kubrick episode uh (laughs)
3: absolutely i'm there I,
1: i will say i think it's complete bullshit when directors get put in a box because of the genre that they choose to to dwell in right um i think that yeah, absolutely. Lubric he, he should Lubrich should be taking serious because of what he brought to it. It wasn't just generic studio bullshit. And the reason filmmakers don't do it today, I don't think it's because they don't want to. I think it's because they don't have the time or the energy because they get asked to do so much. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I I, I technically need 10 weeks to do this. And they're like, well, we'll give you four.
3: Right, um
1: right. so I mean, they just don't have the time or the resources and, and then I don't know, I, I'm assuming that's the reason. Obviously, I have no way of proving that. But when you look back at these studios back in the day, I just feel like they had a little more focus and they weren't being as pulled in many different directions as a lot of filmmakers are today. But I mean, to to discount someone because of the genre they're in is, is bullshit. And it's not fair to the filmmaker because his romantic comedies mean just as much as someone who's going to be highly praised because they're making glitzy dramas. I mean...
2: You know, I, I, but I think what you're saying is an important point because you're right that there is no, it's not like there's a shortage of, of, it's not like there was some kind of talent surge during the 1930s where -hmm. like all of a sudden there was a lot of people who are really good at making romantic comedies or whatever. Like, and now like, it's just like, people just aren't born with that talent anymore. It's like, no, like the studio system from the thirties through the fifties, like Regardless of its flaws and the way they treated actors and unionization and blah, 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 regardless of all the bad things, they, they were good at fostering, you know, unique talents and allowing them to grow and allowing them to grow up through the studio system and learn their craft. And, you know, John Ford, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, a lot of these people could not have done what they did without the assistance of the studio system and things just aren't set up that way anymore. Things, things aren't set up to be, you know, artist driven. They're set up to be driven by algorithm or, you know, um, I mean, yeah. Algorithm really. I mean, how else can you explain something like Emily in Paris?
3: Uh, Well, that I think, and just like, I don't know. It feels like studios are just so bloated. Like they're too big. They have too much money. And the idea that we've kind of, We used, I don't know, almost like a dissolution of the middle class of film that we used to have these kind of like middle of the road budget wise films that were kind of already and interesting. And now it's just like huge $150 million movies and then, you know, $3 million like art films that are like, you know by New York teens or whatever.
0: (laughs) Well, it's,
1: it's funny. It's funny. You say that because that is something that we talk about often on here. And I believe we even discussed it with Pinkerton when he was on here, which is the fact that there, there is no, like it's, it's very interesting the way you worded it because the middle class in general is gone. So the middle class of film has almost gone with it to where it's like you, you get your superhero movies, like you said, or you get your like three to $5 million indie films. But I mean, it's, it's a really shitty situation as film lovers that we're in because without Netflix, we wouldn't have gotten the Irishman. We wouldn't be getting make because studios don't want to pony up 30 or $40 million or even more for these films where no one's in fucking spandex. Like, and it's, it's kind of a, a massive catch 22 because on the one hand, it's like, fuck you Netflix because your algorithm is ruining cinema and, and you're trying to homogenize everything, but on the other hand, it's like, thank you, Netflix, because I loved the Irishman. So
0: right.
1: yeah, I don't know.
2: Yeah, it's like like we talked about this with uh I, I think that one of the one of the best or one of my favorite examples of this is the uh uh Jamie Lee Curtis uh Catherine Bigelow movie Blue Steel. Have you ever seen that, Audrey? No, it's so good. But it's it's Jamie Lee Curtis basically trying to become a cop. But like we, we talked about this as like, there used to be a genre like back in the 90s. I, I know we're I think a little bit older than you are. But like, there used to be a genre back in the 90s, where it was just like women in danger, you know, like, and you can make like a $20 million movie where the narrative is just like, random 90s actresses like in danger of being killed by somebody. And like, that's the movie. And that genre is just gone now, you know, and like there used to be like the historical epic genre like Amadeus or Last of the Mohicans and boom, that's gone too. you know, a lot of these, these kind of Miramax movies, you know, kind of middle brow stuff like it's just it's gone now, like, all of that stuff is completely gone. And like you said, you either have something that has the backing of a major studio Um, or you, you know, you have movies made by teenagers in New York who have rich parents, you know?
3: Well, also something that I've kind of noticed is with, with films, like from the thirties and forties, like, you know, Ninochkin, like all of these, uh, Lubitsch films really that we've been talking about is like the female characters are very interesting and these are very interesting roles and for these actors. And I feel like with kind of the sexual revolution, in the, like in the 60s, women kind of stopped being interesting in films. And I could be wrong. It could be that I, like, haven't seen enough films from, like, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s or whatever, but I really don't like them <laughs> right. for the most part. And I do – it's interesting because it's like, oh, now that we are able to sexualize women, we don't have to have them be real characters in the way that we did. Right. And that's also disappointing because I think that's like still kind of true. Like, I don't, I can't think of very many movies that are like Hollywood movies that have come out in the past 10 years that have really interesting, like roles for women.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think of, this is something I think about all the time and I think we've talked about it on the podcast too. Like, like, um you know there's a lot of like kind of critical hay being made about like how there's no roles for like older women in movies or i say older but like women over 40 i guess and like that did not used to be a problem like like yeah like you go back to the 30s 40s and 50s there's like an older woman in every movie it feels like and they have big parts like it just Joan
3: crawford betty davis like
2: right 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 yeah they were movie stars and like Yeah. And even like we watched a Sam Fuller movie where Thelma Ritter uh, from Rear Window and from uh, what else is she famous for? Thelma Ritter. Um, I don't know, Uh, but she's uh, Thelma Ritter is in uh, this Sam Fuller movie we watched and she's like she has this death scene and it's like it's tragic and it's terrible and it's awful. And she's like this warm. Supporting character and it's just like you would never see that in a movie today you would never see that in a mainstream movie where you have this older woman who has this like really complicated interesting supporting part like it you know it's it, it's I don't know and people think that we are progressing when it's it's more complicated than that you know.
3: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. It is, it's really weird, but yeah, so we we are progressing in a lot of ways politically, but I think the way that the industry has been impacted by like economic interests is really like bringing it several steps down in terms of art (laughs) and artistic merit. Right. It's being compromised for what they think will make them more money i mean they spend like all you know so so much money on these movies and often don't like totally make it back it doesn't always pay off and so then it's like what's the point just be blumhouse just make like (laughs) cheap movies and hopefully they you know take off
2: yeah like tarantino i think there's a tarantino thing where he's talking about jackie brown and he's like. Like this movie costs like $15 million to make and it made you like 60 back. Like, I don't understand why you're not green lighting 12 of these every year. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's like, it's really simple, you know, but instead the, the economics are, well, we're going to make like five, $200 million movies and hope that one of them hits <laughs> a million, you know?
3: Yeah. It's... Like Joker.
2: <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, now that we're all depressed about the state of art and the state of, um, of, uh, movies and culture and all that, um,
1: that's what we're here to do.
2: That's what we're here to do, baby. We're here to depress everybody, but, Sorry, hey, guys. We, but <laughs> no, I mean, hey, we do it on a regular basis. Are you kidding me? Uh, you know, at least we can retreat into the, uh, the warm embrace of, uh, of people like Lubitsch and, you know, George Cukor and, you know, fill in the blank, uh,
1: So, uh, well, I, uh, I actually have two quick questions for Audrey before we wrap up. Okay. Um, coming from someone who wants to be a director, but refuses to make the commitment. Uh, when did you decide you wanted to be a director and just go at it full force? Like, was there a moment or was it just something that you wanted to do? I meant to ask this earlier, but we jumped a movie. So I didn't.
3: Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that. I've had, you know, for a very long time, just a creative urge. And my, uh, from a writing partner and I would like do little films and stuff in college. And I just kind of realized that I enjoyed being behind the camera a lot more. Like it was this kind of crazy rush that I didn't really get from acting, which is fun, but it's not quite as fun. I thought it was like kind of boring compared to, you know, being the person with all the power and getting to see your vision unfold before your eyes.
1: Yeah. That's, um, that's always been so appealing to be a director in terms of like, this is your vision a hundred percent live or die good or bad. Like this is what you want it to put out there. And there's, there's just something so interesting and, and, and draw, like draws you in about that. Um,
3: Something that I always think about in terms of that is, it's kind of weird, but that scene in Annie Hall where he's directing the play that's based on him and Annie. Yeah. Did you, where, where, I don't know, I always think about that when I think of directing and that he is has kind of like designed this vision that he wants to see play out before his eyes and he's doing it. And that really, I feel like captures how I feel about directing.
1: Yeah. There's just something insanely fulfilling about it because it's like, you're not just getting half of like, as an actor, there's so much more left to someone else as to whether this project is going to be good or not. But as a director, it's kind of like, no, this is it. Like it, it, it goes with what you want to do. Like, this is your vision. Um, well, I, I heard
2: an, uh, 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 another, uh, big, uh, Twitter personality, uh, Dasha Nekrasova. I heard her, Uh, being interviewed and uh, which Dasha, if you're listening, come on the podcast. Um, And she said uh, that acting is acting is a craft. Like it's like, you know, people want to say that it's an art, but it's not. It's a craft. You are a craftsman and like your your job is to is more similar to making a chair than it is to writing a novel. And I think that's a great comparison, whereas like directing is, is more similar to writing a novel, you know, like you're you're not at the behest of anybody else. It's, you're the one who sink or swim. You're the one responsible for the, for the output, for the, for the artistic
1: products, you know, that is a good way to put it. It's more of a trade per se.
2: Right. 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 Um,
1: for this, uh, for this CIA thing you're writing, uh, are you putting yourself yeah. in it or are you just going to plan, you just plan to write and direct?
3: Oh no. I mean, I, I, uh... I don't know. I'm. I just kind of just started like writing the pilot, so I might do a version of it, but I, I, I don't know that I would be in it ever. I don't think it's really. Um, I don't think there's any characters that I would really kind of embody. And also, it's. I've realized that I kind of find it annoying to have to be in. Like that's that's how I felt directing Idle Hands. I didn't really like when I had to be in a scene because I did want to be kind of behind the camera and in control and get to getting to see everything. So I, yeah, I don't really plan on starring in anything anytime soon.
1: Yeah. It feels like there's just so much more work when you're writing and you're in it and you're directing, it kind of like really makes you do the heavy lifting all the way around.
3: Well, and you don't, I, I don't know. You don't get to have that, that feeling that I was talking about quite as much when you're the one who is enacting your vision in that way. It's kind of more compelling. I feel like to get to see it before your eyes um, rather than like kind of experiencing it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, well, no, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I was just curious just because, uh, yeah, like I said, you know, directing has always been something that is, is, uh, it's so awesome. The idea of it is so awesome. And, uh, yeah. So I was just curious, you know, what exactly your moment was. So no, that's cool. Um, do we have anything else, guys? We want to cover. Or are we ready to wrap it up?
2: I don't think so. I think we're uh, we're good to go. I will. I will say, Audrey. I don't think you should. I don't think you should give up acting. I can see you in like a Judd Apatow, long like, com <laughs> kind of thing.
3: Um, oh, thank you.
2: Yeah, opposite some like himbo or something. You know. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, and and I'll say this. I don't want to spoil it because, like I said, I'm putting the link to your to your pilot in the show notes. So, guys, go watch that. If you uh, you want to watch something really funny, but you're the like I said, my kind of humor, but the uh, the necrophiliac line and that was just so perfect. It was fucking perfect. So
0: uh, my favorite my my favorite
2: line is when you're laying in bed with the guy, like speaking of of Lubitsch and someone being amused by sex as opposed to frightened of it. When you're laying in bed with a guy and he's like, did you uh," and you're like, no, are you kidding me? Like, (laughs) or is it? No, are you kidding me? Is that what you say?
3: I think so. I think it's just, like, my character is so, like, appalled that he would, like, yeah. not uh, go to the trouble of making sex good for her and then also expect that she right. says <laughs> it, it was great. <laughs>
0: he doesn't even
2: say, like, orgasm or finish or, like, you know, it, it's it's kind of uh, Lubitschian, I guess, in a way. Like, he just kind of like, did you? Uh, and you're just like, no, are you kidding me? Like, obviously I didn't. Why would yeah, you even I- ask that?
3: I do think that also phase of like my writing with Dana, we were both a bit kind of puritan about sex and we didn't want to do anything to, um, I don't know, like I, th- I think we we're kind of like grossed out by the way that sex was portrayed in a lot of kind of right. millennial comedy content. And so the idea of kind of using euphemisms. Um, even while I think a lot of people like of our generation would not do that and might be a bit more kind of crass or, or blunt, um, we just thought it was, you know, kind of more interesting dramatically.
2: Yeah. Like what would the, what would the natural like, let's say that, you know, the Puritan level is people frightened by sex and Lubitsch is amused by it, like, I I don't even mean this pejoratively because I think she's really talented. Um, I, like, what would the like Lena Dunham like post girls attitude towards sex be like? People disgusted by it. That was like, what
3: was. That was what I was thinking of, but I didn't want to diss Lena Dunham. But yeah, I was ex- I was thinking of Lena Dunham.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, like <laughs> we were like
3: we don't want people to like be grossed out by the sex scene. It's just not because right. I think that's also partly why I didn't really like girls. Is right. I didn't really and i i think it's a uh, a kind of uh thing that was kind of just in the culture at the moment as well right. like the way that vice would have those like really detailed articles about like kind of like yeah. kinky sex stuff i was like this is like kind of sterile right and like a bit gross and like not lacking mystery lacking drama
2: it made it made me think of like Like, if you're going to do kind of, like, quote-unquote, like, dysfunctional sex, like, that kind of has to be your topic. It has to be, like, Blue Velvet or something. Whereas, like, you can't just be, like, you can't just have, like, a character, like, walking down, like, should I go to grad school? And then cut to her being, like, pee on me or something, you know? Like... Like, you can't just, like, intermix that into daily life and act like it's, like, just completely normal. You know, it's... Yeah, I it, think
3: Fleabag does it in a p- pretty good way. I mean, I think it's still dated a bit in its attitude towards sex. Right. And towards, like, sort of, like, ideas of feminism. Like, I think it's very, like, of that moment that she wrote the play when she was 26. Right. Um, right. In a lot of ways. But I I do think that does it slightly better and i do think also the second season does have kind of like euphemisms and mystery and a lot of sort of um build up and drama
2: right right yeah because i think about the difference between the first season where she's like like oh i'm doing anal or whatever and it's like boy (laughs) like uh, what are we going for here you know but yeah the second the second season is all like build up and 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 uh, I mean, yeah, it's all build up because he's a fucking priest, you know?
3: Well, that's what we want to see, I feel like. Like when you just go straight, I I understand how um, the sort of like Lena Dunham straight to sex thing, you do get something from that. It is like kind of shocking and interesting the first time. Right. But I do think it can't really like sustain your attention in the way that kind of euphemisms and sort of a slow build build-up canon I think even like of something like Seinfeld right that used euphemisms so much and it made it so much funnier it's when you have those sort of like when you put those limitations on yourself um to create drama I think it you end up being a lot more creative
2: right it's like uh like girls is such a great example because like you know by season five we have like you know allison williams getting her ass eaten and it's like you cannot convince me this is anything but like shock factor like you absolutely cannot convince me anything about story or character or whatever this is just like hey you've never seen this on tv have you you know like that's literally what that is and that's it
3: well i Um, think it's just not that interesting
2: right right
1: just gonna jump in and say things have taken a turn um <laughs> we have gone off the path my friends
2: uh <laughs> audrey we could probably talk all day about uh about modern culture and stuff but yeah we, we we're, gonna, <laughs> we're gonna wrap this puppy up um, good.
1: but yeah no this has been great and uh we hope you had a we hope you had a great time we definitely enjoyed it and you're welcome to come back anytime and talk about movies because that's what we do here and uh And yeah, do you have anything you want to plug or anything you want to talk about before you get out of here?
3: I don't know. Not really. I don't really have anything to plug. I just, you know, I was happy to be on. Thank you for for inviting me on. I had a good time.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Jacob, do you have anything to add before we wrap it up? Uh, Let's wrap it up. Okay. Thanks again, Audrey. And uh, guys, everything will be in the show notes where you can find her, where you can find the pilot, all that good shit. So make sure you check that out.